Uh, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance, um, and really grateful that y'all are with us this morning, both in person and online. So a, a couple of years ago, um, both on stage and with my friends, um, I was really lamenting, and I was just sad that I didn't have a pastor. I felt like I was a general contractor who was building homes for other people, but I was homeless. And so after, you know, talking about intentionality one time in, in my sermon, my wife used one of my sermons against me, and she said, hey, you should be intentional about that. Like, you should reach out to someone to see if they would be your mentor and to, uh, to mentor you so that you would put, like, your intentionality behind your desires. So it just so happened that I was meeting with a mentor uh, in the coming weeks, and I prepared myself to ask him, like, hey, man, would you consider you know, monthly or every now and then, uh, consistently, really, uh, serving as a mentor to me. And he looked at me, he said, no. And uh, <laughs> I went home adding rejection to the list of things that were making me sad. And uh, uh, I really carried that sadness for a little while. Uh, and he said, no, not because he didn't like me. Uh, that's not possible. But <laughs> that's not what I tell myself or what my therapist says. Uh, he was in a busy season of life and, and couldn't commit to that. But for years, really, um, I've been hoping and praying that I would truly find a mentor, a pastor. I've had people in the past who have pastored me, and uh, whether because of distance or whatever reason, those relationships haven't been as close. And so God has really been in the prayer answering business. Um, one of the things I, I love about uh, testimonies, um, both big and small, I think we need to get back into the habit of sharing the positives as well on how God had, has answered prayers. And God has really powerfully answered this prayer for both me and my wife. And um, for the last number of years, I've been very fortunate to be pastored, uh, to be mentored by a pastor who's pastored for decades and has a wealth of experience. And that time spent with him has been really encouraging. You know, COVID was a very difficult time for everybody. And to try to lead a faith community through all the complexities of COVID and George Floyd and just you name it, I mean, I felt like so many times I was just not doing a good job. And spending time with him, I've just been so encouraged to keep on moving forward. I've also been enlightened. I've learned so much from him. Um, and I've also been corrected. You know, he's an old school dude from New York, so as soon as he calls, he just starts yelling. It's like, New Yorkers, we yell just for no reason. I mean, there's like other parts of the country, if they talk at this volume when they're angry, New Yorkers start here, and uh, that's just when things are good. So my wife always knows when he calls, and a lot of those calls are very direct, they're very blunt, and they're corrective. He has a hunting license in my life, and he can say things to me that other people don't feel comfortable in saying. I've also been more intentional about investing in peer relationships with other pastors and other Christian leaders throughout the city, other men and women who have hunting licenses in my life that they can, they can go hunting, they can ask difficult questions, and whether it's through my pastor and, or my other mentors or through my peers, my other pastor friends, I am better because of their correction. It doesn't feel better, but I am better. Now, as we embark on the season of DNA groups and of growth groups, my hope for everybody is that you experience a real encouragement in your faith. I don't know where you are, 
I don't know the mountains that you're climbing. I don't know the issues in your family. I don't know the financial issues. I don't know the unmet desires. I don't know all of the things in your life that are going on. But I do know this. Your life will be more encouraged if you intentionally surround yourself with other people who can help to carry your burden. And that's what we talked about last week. You'll also learn new things. My, My prayer is that you would be enlightened, that you would learn things about Jesus. You would learn things about yourself. You would learn things about what it means for you to take your next steps of faith in following Jesus, and you would just learn how to do it better, that light bulbs will go off, that things will start to click and make sense for you. And my prayer is that we are all enlightened in this next season. But I think everybody has an okay time thinking about being encouraged and being enlightened. But the last piece of what I'm actually praying for is something that I think we tend to resist. Uh, my hope is that there's also some correction happening um, in our community groups. I pray that there's encouragement. I pray that there's enlightenment. But I also really kind of want conflict. Now, for the rest of today, I actually want to make a case for conflict because I think the version of you that you want to be, the version of this community that this community needs to be, happens not by dancing around conflict, but by going through conflict. One of the things that we talk about even in our membership class is that Most people, when they think about a church or a community, what they're really thinking about is not real community. They're just thinking about this pseudo version of community where everybody gets along, everybody smiles. Praise the Lord, my brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing blessed, my brother. But the reality is, once you are around people long enough, you realize that that's not the truth. And I think one of the reasons the outside world looks at the church, and some of you who are new to faith or you don't know where you belong or what you believe about Jesus, some of y'all have a really difficult time just in church because of all the fake people. They smile. They'll say all of the right things here in the Sunday morning auditorium, but behind your back or in different circumstances, they're different. They'll switch up on you. That Christians, we have not learned how to truly have healthy conflict Now, the real version of biblical community does not dance around conflict. It walks through conflict healthily, humbly, patiently. And on the other side of that conflict is an awareness of Jesus that you would not have had before that. On the other side of that conflict is a connection with the other person and the other people that you would not have had without that. So we're in this book of Galatians, and Paul is uh, giving us a glimpse of that, of this truth, that healthy community, healthy community involves conflict. Some of you will hit a conflict in our church and you'll think something must be wrong and this is a beginning of things being right. So let me read the, 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 ver- the scripture, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual... Restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person have to carry his own load. Uh, Today, we're focusing primarily on verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. 
watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Now, you know, as I was thinking about this this whole week, I, I think the biggest obstacle that every one of us in this room faces is we have not been discipled, we have not been formed, we have not been trained, we have not had it modeled for us what healthy, good, Christ-exalting conflict with our brothers and sisters looks like. In so many different ways, I think that what we are carrying, the luggage that we have dragged into this conversation, is the way that our family of origin, the house that you grew up in, has handled conflict. And so, since we've never been discipled in it, and since only thing, the major tools that we have at our disposal are the ones that our family modeled for us, we just kind of resist um, even engaging in this conversation or looking at it uh, specifically. So we've not had healthy conflict modeled for us. One of my favorite quotes by Pete Scazzaro, he says this, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandma and grandpa are in your bones. <laughs> Listen to this next part. We are prone to repeat the ways that our family of origin handled things. The way that you handle things are most likely the way that your family of origin handled things. Now, here's a, a short list of some of the ways that our families of origin, I say family of origin, I mean just the crib that you grew up in, right? The thing that you have been, the thing that you have witnessed for decades, that thing has formed you. Now, without you saying anything, doing anything, it has formed you. Check this out. I, I love, um, my wife's family is Jamaican, and I, they have claimed me as their own as an honorary Jamaican. And uh, I wear it very, I wear that badge very proudly. And um, one of the things that I love about going to Jamaica is the, my mother-in-law, when she's, when she's in New York, I can understand her for the most part. When we go to Jamaica, her accent like really kicks up. And my wife always clowns me because I'll be sitting around a group of people just nodding my head like a dumb American. <laughs> and they're like, Jordan, they asked you a question. I'm like, yes. <laughs> What's your name? Yes. <laughs> and uh, one of the things about accents that's so, empower uh, that's so really fascinating to me is, like, at no point in your life did someone say, yo, this is how you should talk. Like, you just had it modeled for you. People just around you started talking a certain way, and you started talking a certain way. And when you get around other people who talk like that, it amplifies how much you talk like that. So accents are formed in you without your permission and without your knowledge. When you're around the people who talk, like you talk the way, the way you do, <laughs> coffee talk, it it's more and more amplified. The same thing is true with the way that you've been discipled to handle things in your life. The way that you will handle conflict, it's not because someone sat you down and said, hey, you know what? You should be like really defensive. That's a good idea. <laughs> Nobody has ever said that to you. You've just witnessed defensiveness your whole life. So you think it's natural. Here's a short list of some of the ways that our families of origin have handled conflict. Silent treatment. When somebody senses a brewing conflict, they just get quiet and everybody walks away. Lecturing. Lecturing, um, somebody goes on and on and on and on about the thing, and like you never see anything, like you never see any growth. It just feels like this distant lecture that like never changes you. Nobody has left a college lecture and said, oh my God, that changed my life. Blaming, here's a big one. We don't have the tools in our tool belt to handle 
um, conflicts, we blame. Anytime something seems wrong, it's your fault. I wouldn't have said that unless you came at me like that. Uh, condescension, threatening gestures, name-calling, big ones here. Criticism, complaining, denying. Uh, denying is not, not always an outright denial. Sometimes it's a, just a downplaying of what it is. Walking away, um, anger, passive-aggressive behavior, lying, showing contempt. So if we were to pass around a mic and say, hey, which one did your family really do the most? Um, I'm sure we would hear a lot of similarities, but we'd also hear a lot of differences. But two I really want to highlight right now, just for the sake of it, a, a lot of us have seen explosive versions of anger. But we've seen criticism that doesn't lead towards health. And so I don't want to be a part of that. And as a result, because there are overly critical people, we've gone to avoidance or denial or, 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 or blaming to avoid the harsh criticism or contempt we were feeling from the other side. Now, here's the thing about this. Very brief commercial for our Emotionally Healthy Relationships course that's happening um, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll probably send out another email about this, members. Uh, for anybody who's a member, you're welcome to take the class. If you're not a member already, please sign up before, Monday, uh, before next Sunday, and there still should be room for you to join the course as well. Today, we're going to just scratch the surface about what healthy conflict looks like. But for this course, we're, we're hoping to give you tools in your tool belt on how to navigate relationships in a really healthy way so that you would not repeat the mistakes from your family of origin. So you would be able to have beautiful, healthy conflict that everybody can grow from and a myriad of other things. So please, um, we are strongly encouraging anybody who thinks that that might be beneficial for you to make sure you sign up for that, for that uh, course. So our goal for that really truly is to disciple people on how to put away your old ways of handling things and to adopt the new ways that reflect the kingdom of God so that you can have really healthy, God-honoring relationships, whether with a spouse, kids, boss, roommate, whoever. So another real big reason that I think we're just uh, avoidant of conflict is we're just not used to it. So it feels foreign to us. One of my uh, pastor friends in D.C., a man named Duke Kwan, he says it like this. Um, Oftentimes, criticism or complaint is experienced by the recipient as a lack of empathy. Don't you know how hard I'm trying? And a lack of empathy as a kind of betrayal. How can you treat me like such a stranger? No wonder the impulse to defend, react, and counterattack, even when the original critique is relatively minor, can be so intense and feel so personal. And so I really truly do want to make the case that a healthy relationship, a healthy community, they all involve conflict. So we would do very well to get used to it. Proverbs 27 and 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Listen to that juxtaposition. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It did hurt you, but they're faithful wounds and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So we need people in our lives who will be faithful to us to wound us, not in a hurting way, but in a gentle, healing way, so that we can be what God is calling us to be. And so I truly want to highlight this mandate, really, first and foremost in Scripture. What Paul is doing here, the first verse, he says, brothers and sisters... So what Paul is basically doing is he is saying everybody who has been born again 
You are not born again into this detached spiritual enlightenment. I remember when I first became a Christian 20 years ago, um, I didn't even know what it meant to be born again. I just thought that I used to roll dice and smoke weed and get into fights, and now I'm born again, baby. So now I'm not going to do that anymore. But my life lived detached for probably about a, a decade. And I realized over the years that to be born again is not to be just born again into behavior modification, but it's that you have been born again to a new father with new brothers and new sisters. And as a result, we are obligated and we are indebted to and we are connected to other people in really meaningful ways. And so I really want to be sensitive about this to a certain extent. Um, there are some people in our church where... Like, if you tell somebody that you pulled up the church, they'd be like, what happened? Like, they would be shocked because it's been that long that you felt safe or felt comfortable coming to church. And um, to you, shout out to everybody who's uh, in the building and watching us online, uh, where you don't necessarily know what you believe about Jesus or scripture or faith, and you're here, you're rocking with us. You know, I, all I want you to do is come back next week and fill out a connection card. Some of you also, um, I know your stories. Uh, you have just come from a pretty brutal church hurt situation, scandal, abuse, whatever the case is, and you're just not like racing to just embed yourself in good old community again, and I get it. Uh, nothing makes me happier than to know that there are people who are healing up at Renaissance. You're sitting in the back, you're watching online, and you're just healing up for a season, and the good news is I've seen people kind of come through that season and emerge on the other side. So if, if you're not new and if you're not coming from a church hurt, I, I really do want to impress upon you these first words that we are brothers and sisters. And like, what kind of brother or sister would you be if you did not care about the well-being of your family? Um, the baby is very sad at that notion. <laughs> so when I think about my own brother, my older brother, um, praise God for my family. We have a very tight family. Like, it doesn't matter how good my life is going. If his life is not going well, there's a sadness that I carry. Like, my life will never be amazing if his life is not amazing. Because I'm in, I'm, we're bonded together. And what Paul is first and foremost saying, before we even get to the notion of conflict, he's saying, you are born again to a new family. Not just a new church that you attend on Sundays or 10 or 1130. The hope of the Christian journey, the hope of the gospel is that it creates a new set of brothers and sisters to love you, to walk with you. People who will help you. That you and I are connected to these people that we would be in this gospel community. One of my favorite quotes is by uh, street theologian Jackie Hill Perry. She says like this, we all need friends that make sin look bad, God look big, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. Good friends help you grow. And so um, sin look bad, God look big, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. So our DNA groups, they stand for discipleship, nurturing, and accountability. Um, we are truly hoping that you would commit yourself intentionally for eight weeks, this is not an indefinite amount of time, to grow in community, to be with other brothers and sisters who will make sin look bad, God look really, really big, the grace of God look very, very tangible to you, that it's near to you, it's accessible to you, and the gospel look true that it reminds you of who you are in Christ. Good friends will help you grow. Now, for those of you who are already in DNA groups, um, when you're signed up, please be praying 
uh, for this semester that God would do something in our groups. Uh, we have been praying as a staff. We realize the limitations of what we can do on Excel spreadsheets to organize groups of people. So please be praying with us. And for those of you who are not already registered, please make sure you do that before next week. All right. So first he says, brothers and sisters, if any of you If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with his gentle spirit. So he tells people, like, if you see someone overtaken in wrongdoing, this is Paul's version of the New York City campaign. If you see something, say something. (laughs) New Yorkers don't care about nothing, and I'm guilty of this myself. I've seen some wild stuff on the subway and have not skipped one beat on my podcast. (laughs) So what Paul is basically saying is all of us have the chance and have the opportunity to function with a blind spot, to to live with a blind spot to the extent that we don't even know that we're off course. And Paul says, if you see someone who is overtaken in a wrongdoing, now the wrongdoing is not, it doesn't have to be something big and scandalous or salacious. It could just be that your friend is really, really selfish. You just notice that this person in your DNA group, this brother or sister on on your greeting team, They're just like really, really, really selfish, right? When you notice these things, Paul is saying it is our obligation to not just kick it aside, but to pay attention to that and to engage it in a real way. Now, this also really reflects on the gospel. This whole letter of Galatians is written to explain and to explore what the gospel actually means. And there's two thieves of the gospel, moralism and relativism. Moralism focuses on the outcomes of individuals. Relativism focuses on the autonomy of individuals. Keep that slide up because I want to break it down for a second. So a moralistic person is focused on you doing different behaviors. They want you to change your behaviors, believing that by changing your behaviors, God will be more pleased with you. Now, it is true that God does care about the way we behave, but the, the cross of Jesus Christ has fully paid for all of our sins. And whether or not we are in right standing with God doesn't, cannot depend on us because all of our righteousness is filthy rags. So the moralist, as Paul confronts in the, in the book of Galatians, is they would approach conflict by trying to make you change what you're doing. The relativists would say like, yo, YOLO, if that's what they want to do, let them do it. They're free to do them. They do them, I do me. Because relativism in general doesn't think that any behavior really matters. God loves you. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. As long as you're not hurting nobody else, it's hurting you, but it's not hurting me. So do you. I think the gospel invites us into a messier version of getting in the middle of things with people, not so that they would do something different, but rather that they would be something different. So the the gospel will fuel us not to be moralists and try to change someone's behavior, But if we see someone overtaking any wrongdoing, that we would try to do what he does next, says to to restore them. Uh, You who are spiritual. So the goal in what Paul is uh, really showing us here in Galatians 6 is that people would be different. That our intervention in our life would lead towards their thriving and would lead towards them being put back into place. So let me go back to this. He says, you who are spiritual, and what Paul is basically saying is, those of you who are spiritually minded, that your life gives evidence to the fruit of the Spirit growing inside of you, you and I have a responsibility to take the initiative in seeking restoration and reconciliation with those who have been caught 
in such an error. So if you are a spiritual person, what Paul is basically, basically saying is the spirit-filled life cannot be self-focused. So then Paul says to restore such a person. And to restore means to put back in place. And the word in the Greek basically means like to relocate a dislocated bone. So I told the story before, when I was in, um, in law school in North Carolina, I was playing basketball on a tournament, and um, I went up for a rebound, and I put my hand in the pile, and when my hand came out, it was facing this way, and my pinky was facing that way, and I knew something was terribly wrong. You know something is really messed up when you don't feel it. Like, when my pinky was looking that way, and I was like, I don't even feel anything wrong, and that's when I knew it was jacked up. And... Um, I immediately started to kind of panic a little bit because I've never had an injury like that. And I went to a, a dear family friend who had dealt with dislocations before, and he said he was going to put it back in place. In hindsight, to be honest, I probably would have gone to the hospital for that. <laughs> but I let him put it back in place. And the main reason I let him put it back in place was, thinking, was knowing that he was not going to inflict an ounce of unnecessary pain. Listen, I knew it was going to hurt. I knew it was going to hurt. I'm not an idiot. But I trusted him because it wasn't going, he wasn't going to add an ounce of any unnecessary pain. One of the things that Paul is calling for people to do is to restore people and to do it gently and to be a part of the pain of someone's healing. Now, there are different types of pain that I was experiencing that day. On one hand, I had experienced the pain of dislocation. I had experienced the pain of dislocation, and it hurt. By the time, you know, I went to the sideline, it didn't hurt at first, but it was really starting to throb, and I knew something was really off. I invited him to be a part of another type of pain. This was going to be the pain of healing. He was going to have to do something to my hand that was going to hurt, but it wasn't going to be a hurt for no reason. It was going to be a hurt that healed. One of the main reasons that Christians talk behind other people's backs is this. We do not want to be a part of the messy, uncomfortable part of healing, of growth, because it's going to cost you something. The difficult conversations should cost you something. You should be really carrying something heavy with you as you move into a difficult conversation. It shouldn't be light for you. And one of the things that I, I hope and I pray is this, that you would be a person that goes directly to the person and does not talk about that person with other people. Let me say that again. My hope and my prayer, if you've done it a hundred times, I hope and pray that for you, seriously, repentance takes root. Repentance doesn't mean you change your belief. It means you, change your, you turn in direction. Nothing will, nothing will completely decimate real community like gossip and talking behind people's backs. If it's so serious, say it to them. Be a part of their healing journey. Be a part of God coming to meet them and do it with a gentle spirit. A gentle spirit means that you are aware of the pain that it's going to cost, that this other person is enduring um, with this conversation. And so I think one of the best ways to talk about what gentleness is is by talking about what it's not. It's not criticism and it's not contempt. Criticism is... I, I mean, you thought that was good? Like, that's, that was terrible. Criticism doesn't offer any road path. It doesn't offer any path forward. It doesn't ask questions. It doesn't listen. It doesn't seek to understand. 
It doesn't do anything. It just lobbies the complaint against you. Why do you think that was a good job? It was a terrible job. Contempt now attaches the criticism to you, to your character, to your person. Yo, you always do that. You're like, you're the worst. Like, how could you, how could you think that was okay? And I'm very humbled, even in thinking of the way that some of us talk to our kids, and the way that I, I talk to my kids sometimes, um, that the way we talk to our kids will be the way they talk to themselves later. And so, Paul is telling us to do it with a gentle spirit, without criticism, without contempt. Criticism will lead a person to feeling attacked, and then that will be defensive. Contempt, uh, the recipient will feel despised and worthless. And one of the great indicators that you are not doing this the right way is if a person leaves your presence and feels worthless. Like, that's a great indicator of this. Again, we're just scratching the surface today. I hope and pray that, that um, for everybody who wants to be in an emotionally healthy relationships course, that you're in it, because we really are going to give you tools on how to do this in a, in a good, healthy way. But Paul tells us to do this with a gentle spirit. Gentleness means not adding an ounce of things that don't need to be there. And the fuel for gentleness um, is actually is a couple of things. One, I'll say this. First and foremost, we need to always make sure this message today is not handing you a badge to be the sin police. You are not the sin police. I don't want you to be the sin police. Many of you cannot do this because you have not earned the right to be heard in someone else's life. You don't even know what's going on in their life. You haven't spent any time with them. You just want to lodge complaints and criticism against them. That's not gentle. Gentleness first knows what's going on in a person's life, that you have earned the right to be heard in their life. How do you earn the right to be heard in someone's life? That they know that you love them. They know that you care about them, that you care for them, that you've been inquiring about how they're doing, not just what they're doing. And so if we do these things, I think we would be the type of people who are, we're creating a safe space. Check this out. We want people to be vulnerable. I hope and pray that your group is vulnerable with each other. There is no such thing as vulnerability without, trans, without uh, a safe space for people to be transparent. Nobody is going to be vulnerable in a place where they don't think it's a safe space for them to truly be transparent. So it's on us to be people who have earned the right, that they know we're trustworthy. They know that we'll keep their words to ourselves and we won't blab about it to anybody else that, doesn't need to, that truly doesn't need to know these things. And so... Paul has given us his roadmap of what it looks like. And the last thing he says is to consider yourself, to consider yourself. One of the biggest things that I've really been confronted with this past week is thinking about the sense of moral superiority that I go into conversations with. Y'all are, y'all are lying on this side. I didn't get no amens on that side. I know, <laughs> I know y'all go into conversations thinking, you go into the conversation thinking, I would never do that. I don't know how they did that. They're bugging. And since we go into the conversation feeling morally superior, the conversations never go well. It's because we haven't truly considered ourselves. What does it mean to consider, consider yourself? It means to look at what the length to which Jesus had to go to for you. For you, not for, not for someone, not, not your brother, not your sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. You know, I, I, used to, I used to judge the old saints at my old church when we would sing a song and they would just get up and start crying. They would sing one line, if it had not been for the Lord on my side. And they would just get up and start crying. I'm like, yo, that's, she did that last week. She ain't serious. <laughs> but the older I get, 
the older I get, the more humble I get. I realize if it had not been for the Lord on my side, I know where I would be. I know exactly where I would be. I'm no better than anybody else. Even if you're doing better, you are no better. Scripture tells us that Jesus himself had to bear your sins on his body, on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, not your righteousness, not your good behavior, by his wounds, we have been healed. So we are told to consider ourselves in light of Jesus and the cross. How did Jesus carry your sin to the cross? Jesus, the sinless Savior. Have you ever thought about what he was thinking when he was carrying our sin to the cross? He did it humbly. Scripture says that he was like a lamb led to the shearers, that he was silent. He didn't say a word. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't gossiping on the way to the cross. He did it with joy. Scripture says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He saw the benefit of what right relationship with you and God would be. And that's why he did it. And Jesus did it at his own cost. He did it at the cost of his own life, taking the pain. Now, when we see Jesus high and lifted up on the cross for us, when we consider the way that Jesus had to carry that cross for us and our sins, I think it would help us to consider ourselves. And it might make us the type of humble people who can give out and to bear witness and walk patiently and to give gentle correction to those who are in need. When we see the lengths to which Jesus went for on the cross, may we be the type of people that know how firmly established we are in God, and we don't need to be defensive. We don't need to try to make our case. Our case has already been made on the cross. It's done. It is finished. May we be these people. Dear Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters. I thank you that I can belong to such a great community. Lord, I pray that as groups are getting ready to kick off, I pray that the pseudo-community niceness, that that goes away, Lord. And we're able to be real in each other's lives. I pray that we are able to experience real growth, real connection as we pour over Scripture and we pour into each other's lives. Lord, make us different. Make us special. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room and those watching online. I pray that the seed of your word would grow deeply in our hearts and produce good fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.